I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and go to Matthew's Gospel and the fifth chapter. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, you'll find it on page 810. And because this is the last one, we'll actually go back a page and we'll just read through all the Beatitudes. Verse 1 of Matthew 5, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's bow and ask God's direction. Father, I come to you now just asking that the time we spend here in your word would be beneficial in the way that we want to see you better, we want to love you more, we want to appreciate you in a greater way, and we want to change. All of us are on a spiritual journey and a path that you're bringing us upon, bring us along, and I pray that today we would be sensitive to what your Spirit's teaching us through your Word. And I pray that we would submit to what your, your Word says, and that it would be helpful to us. For some, we need our faith strengthened. For some here, we need faith for the first time. And so I pray that this is what would happen today as a result of looking at this passage of Scripture. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Now we need to remember, as I've reminded you each week, that this is a description of what a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ should look like. And so when Jesus is sitting down with these disciples here, this, this sermon that he preaches, it starts with a very small group of people. And then, as I've mentioned before, when you go to the end of the sermon in a couple chapters, a great crowd has gathered and they're astonished at Jesus' teaching and the authority that he had and, and what he was saying. And so this was a, a, an incredible sermon that was preached here. And it was something that Jesus was saying, look, if you want to to follow me. If you want to be my disciple, this is what it looks like. And we've also said that this is, that every one of these beatitudes 
is for every Christian. And so it's not, as I've said before, it's not a buffet where we pick and choose or it's not a pick two for five on the McDonald's menu of, you know, choosing what you want and then that's what you have. No, this is the totality of what Jesus is saying here is he's saying this is the description of a disciple. So if you call yourself a Christian and I call myself a Christian, then when we look at this text of scripture, it really should be eye-opening to us, and it really should be something that we're wrestling with and trying to figure out what Jesus is really talking about. Because it's so important, and as I mentioned earlier, the entire rest of the sermon flows out of these Beatitudes. And, and it's, it's gotta, it had to have been shocking for the disciples. I mean, put yourself in their shoes, okay? You, you, you're starting to follow this guy, Jesus. And, and understand this, is that Jesus, he is, uh, uh, he's God-man, okay? So he looks like them. He's about their age, okay? And so it's not like that there was like this, 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 this aura around Jesus all the time. And so people stopped in awe of looking at him because he looked different. No, he looked like Peter. Okay, he looked like a human. And so this guy is sitting down and he starts saying, these are the people who are blessed. And by that, we talked about how it's God's approving smile. They're happy, but it's more than just happiness because it's it's more than just a feeling. It's a position that Jesus is saying. He's saying, they find my approval. They find the Father's approval. These are the people that find the approval. And put yourself in their shoes, and so you hear what he's saying, poor in spirit, and, and those who mourn, and, and it goes through. And then he comes to this, and he says, when you're persecuted. Man, that would have, that would have been a difficult thing to hear. You know, and this is what Jesus is teaching here. He's teaching this is what we should expect. Now, let me just, let me just mention this. And the introduction here before I make three observations quickly, and that, and that it's this that when we talk about persecution here, what Jesus is talking about, he makes it very clear that he's talking about being persecuted for righteousness' sake. He's not talking about enduring common life difficulties as a result of living in a sin cursed world. I get headaches fairly common. I am getting over a cold. I'm pretty much done with this cold. That's not persecution. Now, I'm not saying that persecution can't come in terms of physical ailments and things like that, but I'm just saying, or physical attacks. But what I am saying is that when we have just difficulty in life because we're living in a sin-cursed world, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. And, and, And Jesus is also not talking about uh, people having zeal without knowledge, like Proverbs 19.2 says, talking about people who maybe they're so passionate about what they believe that they're obnoxious for it and, and they're actually offensive in it, and then people resist that. That's not the persecution that Jesus is talking about here. He makes it very clear in this, and we have to understand this in the beginning to understand everything else for today, is that he's talking about being persecuted for righteousness' sake. And he clarifies that when in the next verse when he says, on my account, or because of my name, or because of me. And so what he's saying there is, if you're trying to live your life like Christ, and you face opposition for it, or persecution for it, you are blessed, 
For yours in the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is saying here. So every time for the rest of this time when we're talking together, when we talk about persecution, what we're talking about is facing opposition for trying to mold our life after Jesus. Because remember, we already defined righteousness in verse 6 when we went through that verse when it says those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we defined it as those who do the right thing with the right motives. And so in this case... If we're doing the right thing for the right motives because we're following Jesus Christ and we're persecuted because of it, Jesus calls us blessed. So let me just make three pastoral observations about this text of Scripture this morning, and I hope it will be a help to us. Number one, taking notes, is this. Persecution is an ever-present reality. Persecution is an ever-present reality. We already saw here when Jesus says in verse 10, he says, blessed are you when others revile you. That's actually verse 11. And verse 10 says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The idea of what Jesus is saying here is not necessarily if it happens, but it's more of when it happens. In fact, if actually the way it's written is that he's talking about a present state of affair. So what Jesus is saying here, he says, listen, this is happening, it's going to happen, and you're blessed for it. And so one of the things that we need to understand, if we're going to live in this world and live like Jesus, is that persecution is an ever-present reality. It's not, it's not if it happens, it's more of when it happens. We've already read 2 Timothy 3.12 today when Chad read it with our scripture reading earlier just a few minutes ago. And, and let me remind you what it says. It says in 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That, that, that verse should be underlined and highlighted in your Bible. And the reason why is because we are often surprised when the world, when other people reject the, the righteous living or reject trying to be like Christ. And we act like this is some strange thing. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4, if you will. Just to just, just head a few pages over to the end of the New Testament. And, and Peter, we were, we were just there in chapter 5 at the call to worship time in the beginning of our service. But in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, we see this. We see, and this is page 1016, and the Bible's provided for you there if you're using one of those. In 1 Peter chapter 4, and verse 12, Peter says this. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so what we see here is that persecution is an ever-present reality that we shouldn't be surprised at all when this happens. And so for our Christian orientation in our life, as we're trying to plod along in this world, we need to get in our minds that people are going to resist any type of righteous living. It's going to happen. And so, and so we, we shouldn't be so uh, uh, blown away when we have 
no voice in the public square anymore. When we try to tell people about righteousness and people mock us, we shouldn't be surprised because it's an ever-present reality. It's always been that way. Jesus also said, there he says, well, the prophets suffered the same thing. And, and, and I think it's surprising to us because we have been living in kind of like a grace bubble of sorts for so long. Where at one time, a Christian life was actually considered normal in our country. And I'm not saying our country was a Christian nation necessarily, but the reality or the values and the morality, rather, it was in here accepted. But that has not been the case for most of the world. I mean, if we go all over the world today, we find Christians being persecuted. In, in various and different ways, but we see that, that, that this is nothing new, and so persecution is an ever-present reality. And now, the reason why I'm driving this point home today is because I don't think we realize that. I, I, I think we're afraid that it's coming. I, th- I think we're, 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 it's, almost, it's almost like, you know, the doomsday preppers. You know, we're trying to figure out how to get our spiritual bunkers in order because this, this is going to come. But my point, it's been here the entire time because the world is at odds with God and the world is at enmity with God, the Bible says. Go to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And this is... Um, found in page, let me get there, this is page 1008 in the Bibles that you're using or that are provided for you. Verse 35, here the writer is talking about how some of these people who claim to follow God, who follow God, they were treated. Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection, but it says some were tortured Refusing to accept release so that others may rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins and sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. And so what we see here is what we see is that, that persecution has always been here. And it's not going away. In fact, the early church, if you, if you look at the New Testament, much of the New Testament is an encouragement of how to endure. First Peter talks about going through suffering. James, at the end of James we find it. We read earlier. We see um, uh, the book of Revelation even has uh, uh, references to this. We see uh, uh, all over the scriptures, First Thessalonians, that we're told to endure patiently because persecution is an ever-present reality. So understand it. Embrace it. Know that this is, this is reality. This isn't coming. This isn't something that we need to fear. It's here. 
It's in different ways. And that leads us to our second observation this morning, that that's this, that persecution is, comes in a variety of forms. Now, notice what Jesus talks about here. Jesus, in the text here, he, he doesn't talk about it in just one form of persecution. Back in Matthew 5, he says that when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. So he's talking about those who mock you, those who pursue you. That's what the idea underneath that uh, word persecute there is those who pursue to imprison and pursue to lay hands on. He says you can be mocked, you can be pursued, and then you can be slandered. And these are just a variety of ways that persecution can come and can be that we can experience here. And so what Jesus is saying, he's saying this is going to happen. He says, you're blessed when it happens. And so, so just understand that this is going to take place. And so if you're a follower of Christ, this is what we signed up for. And this is the reason why in our evangelistic efforts, what we need to do is that we don't need to just to tell people, come to Christ and all your problems go away. We need to tell people, and this is one of the reasons why the prosperity gospel makes me angry. Because it lies to people. People who preach that God just wants you to have health and wealth and happiness all on this earth right now, they're lying to you. Because the scriptures say that what Jesus says is that when we follow him, that we actually can expect life in some ways to get worse, not better. But this is all temporary. We're going to get to the reason why this is okay. And our last point. But consider John the Baptist. John the Baptist, what happened to him? What was he doing? This is the guy who was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He was Jesus' cousin, okay? So he's about six months older or so than Jesus. And he, they grow up together. And John the Baptist, then, he goes about and he's telling people, this is the Lamb of God. This is the people that you want to, this is the person you want to follow. And so what he's doing is he's, he's, he's all in on Jesus. Then he gets thrown in prison, some of you remember why. He was preaching and he was talking to the emperor, to the king, and he was saying, look, you want to marry someone that you're not supposed to marry. You, you, want, to be, you want people to sanction a marriage that God does not sanction. And you can't do it. You shouldn't do it. So what did the king do? The king didn't repent. The king didn't say, you're right, like the king of Nineveh did when Jonah preached. He threw him in prison. He didn't know what to do with them because he didn't want to create any more problems for himself, so he just left them there. And it's interesting, this, this central figure in the New Testament, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, then it's like he goes silent. We don't hear anything about him. We get one little blip on the radar when John sends word to Jesus, and obviously he had been questioning something. He says, are you the one? Or should we wait for another? Jesus graciously sends a word back to John the Baptist, and he says, he says the, the lame walk, the blind see. What was he saying? He didn't rebuke John for a lapse of faith. Instead, he just said, look around. Look what's happening. The Son of Man's here. The Son of God's here. So, so we don't really know what's going on, but we get this unfortunate story then. We find out what happened to John the Baptist. The same king that he said, no, that marriage is wrong. Put him in prison. The wife that he eventually married, illegitimately and wrongfully, hated John the Baptist. Just hated him for it. 
So at a party, the king had a lot to drink. The daughter of his now wife danced before him. He was so struck by her that he said, what do you want? I'll give you anything you want. Up to half my kingdom. What do you want? And so she, the daughter, went back to her mom and said, what should I ask for? And it wasn't riches. It wasn't wealth. It wasn't position. She said, John the Baptist's head. The king was sorry, but he had to keep his word. Or so he thought. So, John the Baptist, the one who was the cousin of Jesus, the one who literally gave everything to point people to Jesus, he was considered kind of crazy in a lot of ways for his fanaticism. He lost his head because of his connection to Jesus. What about Stephen? We read in Acts. Stephen, he's, he's stoned. He's preaching, and the people there can't stand what he's saying. And so what does they do? They pick up stones, and they begin to throw them at him to kill him. And what does Stephen do in that moment? He prays for the people. He prays for the souls. What motivates someone to do this? What motivates someone like John the Baptist to say, I will lose everything? For Stephen to say, I will be stoned. You see, persecution comes in so many different ways. Remember Peter and John, also in Acts. They were preaching and teaching, and people were just mocking them and ridiculing them. They eventually were arrested. They were beaten. They were set free. Paul, I mean, all, how many times did this guy get beaten? There was one point he was beaten so severely. He was so severely beaten that they thought he was dead. They left him outside because they thought he was dead. And they left him there, and he wasn't dead. They got up, and what did he do? He went preaching Jesus Christ. He was shipwrecked. He was imprisoned. What? What motivates these people to do this? What about the Christian today? Persecution comes in a variety of forms. Now, we may not be experiencing in this area right now stonings and beheadings. But we do know that Christians around the world in this very moment are dealing with those realities. But what are we dealing with today? Well, some of our students in school, they have a choice to make. One of the hot topic issues, sexuality, gender identity, homosexual marriage. These students, these Christian students, at 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, whatever, they have to make a decision on what are they going to say? Because teenagers talk about everything, okay? You know, at work, you guys can probably avoid some of those conversations because you all want to keep your jobs. Teenagers, they talk about everything. What's a Christian going to say? What's a Christian teenager going to say right now? I guarantee it, Christian teens, I know, they get mocked for this. And i got to admit that I used to kind of downplay mocking as a form of persecution. I used to say, you know, the worst that we deal with is people making fun of us. And you've probably even heard me say this. The worst that, that we deal with is people making fun of us. And we don't know anything about persecution. Well, there is some truth to that, I go back to what Jesus says here. And Jesus talks about being slandered and reviled or being mocked about this. And he includes that in it as a legitimate form of being persecuted. And so we have our students here that are faced with this every 
day how to live that Christian life without being made fun of, without being mocked and ridiculed. You at work probably experience this as well. What about at family reunions when conversations like this come up? How do you stand as a Christian? How do you articulate your faith in a way that, that is, is winsome and kind, but yet faithful to the Word of God? And yet we are all afraid at times of what people are going to think about us, are going to say about us. See, persecution comes in a variety of different forms. And, and, and let me tell you the reason why. Let me just show you. Go back. I had you go to 1 Peter once. Let me, let me have you go back there. First Peter chapter 4. Here's the reason why this happens. First Peter chapter 4, page 1016, it says this. Since therefore, verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Listen to this. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. See, this is the reason why, because when someone doesn't go along with, with a sinful living, it's a reproach to those who are doing it. So when someone just says, no, I'm not going to participate in that, then automatically then those who participate in that want to attack the, the, the one who is consciously objecting from doing it. And so even by nature of being a Christian and saying, no, I am not going to affirm that, then we are open ourselves to various forms of persecution because the world hates God. And no one likes to have their sin exposed. And wherever there's light, it exposes darkness. And that's exactly what's happening here. So we're, we're trying to figure this thing out about what Jesus is talking about this morning. He's talking about blessed are those who persecuted for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We said that persecution is an ever-present reality. It's, it's always here. We've also talked about how that persecution comes in a variety of forms. But my final observation that I would like to talk about just for a minute is this. That persecution is actually grounds for rejoicing, not fear. Persecution is grounds for rejoicing and not fear. Now you think, now wait a minute here. Are you, are you talking about that we should just kind of have this, this sick appetite where we want to be persecuted? No, and I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. But when we shouldn't go looking for it. Because we're going to look at a text in Scripture where Jesus tells us not to. But what I am saying, what I am saying is that if persecution, we're faced with persecution, that shouldn't cause us to fear. Or the thought of persecution coming shouldn't cause us to fear, but it should cause us to rejoice. Why? Now, how is this possible? How is this possible that 
we rejoice instead of fear. I have three reasons that I'll share with you quickly, and then we'll be done. Number one is we rejoice because persecution confirms our discipleship and reward. Back in Matthew chapter 5, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a confirmation. If we're willing to die for Christ, if we're willing to be persecuted, if we're willing to suffer, uh, 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 be made fun of because of Christ's sake, then it must mean that there's a spirit of God and at work in us, keeping us. And by virtue of the fact that we can stand and, and, and take that and, and live with that, we need to understand this is an affirmation that we are a disciple. This is in the context, understand, we've said all along, all all along in this whole entire series here of what Jesus is saying. He's describing what a disciple looks like. And he gets to the persecuted. And so here I am. I'm thinking to myself, am I meek? Am I mourning sin? Do I have pure in spirit? And do I, do I, uh, um, uh, do I uh, hunger and thirst after righteousness? I'm thinking of all these things here. And then, and then you can imagine, I'm sitting in my study. I get to this and I see, am I persecuted? Am I willing to be persecuted? I'm a disciple of Christ. If this is describing what a disciple of Christ is, then I have to say yes. This is no less a description of the disciple than the others. I think a lot of us in our Christian pilgrimage, we're okay with everything else. We're okay with even being humble. And we're okay with hungering and thirsting after righteousness to a degree. And we're okay with being meek. And we're okay with some of these other things. But man, asking us to be ridiculed and made fun of and maybe lose a job or something like that, no way. And I gotta say, it's sobering to me because if we're not willing, I gotta wonder, are we even part of God's family. But we're not to fear persecution. We're actually to rejoice because when we stand in that moment, God's affirming your mind. Um, 1 Peter chapter 4, we've already read it. That we said there that Peter says that if you're mocked or ridiculed, the Spirit of God is on you. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. Remember, this is when Peter and John were, the disciples were, were persecuted and they were arrested and they were released. And does anyone remember what, what, they, what they did when they were released? Their attitude was this it says, they rejoiced, they were amazed that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. I would dare say most of you claim to be a Christian today, as I do. So let, this is, I'm being very pastoral here. This is the reason I, I, I'm teaching this in a different way today than I would if I was in a college setting or whatever. We've got to wrestle with this question here. Would we count it a privilege to suffer for Jesus' sake? Or do we seek to isolate ourselves from any form of persecution? I think a lot of times we, 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 we go towards the other one. How can, how can we protect ourselves? How can we keep this away? Rather than saying, no, Jesus says this is grounds for rejoicing. Paul says it. Peter says it. It's a theme throughout all of Scripture here. The early disciples, they were amazed that they were counted worthy. 
So it confirms our discipleship. Jesus says, great is the reward in heaven. Confirms this. Shows us that we are his. Go to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. This is page 815. This is going to lead us into the, the second reason. I think this verse does both. It, re, it confirms our discipleship, but also it tells us so we can rejoice because persecution provides for unique ministry opportunities. In verse 16 of Matthew 10, it says this, Behold, Jesus says, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and, har- and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. That's an amazing promise to me. Because as I was thinking, because a a large part of my study, I'm going to just let you, here's a window into my study week this last week. A large part of my wrestling with this text has been trying to figure out how to reconcile Jesus saying that basically you're going to be persecuted in a couple different places here. And also in chapter 11 of Matthew, when Jesus says, come to me all you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you what? rest. He says, take my yoke upon you. He says, he says, and learn from me, for my yoke is what? Easy, and my burden is light. Okay, I'm trying to reconcile this. How is it that in one case, Jesus is saying, you're going to go, and you're going to be persecuted, and you can even die. You're going to be dragged before kings and governors, and they're going to flog you. And by the way, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. How do you reconcile that? Now, here's the reason, because I believe Matthew 10 helps us understand this a little bit. And he says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Basically, he's saying that his spirit will be so upon you in that moment, if you're standing for him, that you will have the ability to stand. You, don't, can't, you can't comprehend it right now. There's no way in the world that you can, you can fathom it right now, but you're not in it right now. So don't worry about it. Just stand for Christ. You see, what he's saying here is that, like Paul said, remember when he was in prison in Philippians chapter 1, what did he say? He said, I actually, it's been good that I've been in prison because the whole imperial guard has heard about, about Christ. You see, when we follow Christ and we're sold out for Christ and that he is our most important thing in the world to us, understand we will see that God uses all things for his glory and our good, even if we're in prison, even if we lose our head, like John the Baptist. It's worth it. It's so worth it. So he says, I'll give you what to say. This is the reason why Paul and Silas, they could sing in prison this is the reason how Richard Wormbrand, who wrote a book called Tortured for Christ, he founded Voice of the Martyrs. This is the reason why he could say this. It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. 
It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached, they beat us. We were happy preaching, they were happy beating us, so everyone was happy. In that moment, he will give you what you ought to say. This is the God we serve. It it seems unfathomable to us. I, I can't put my mind around this. I'm preaching right now with no fear of someone coming to beat me. Richard Wormbrand preached knowing that he would receive a beating and it was worth it to him. Now, the only thing I can say is that the reason why this is so important is because God ministers to us very specifically in that moment and we see a side of God and God's love that we would never see before. See, this is the reason why persecution is to be rejoiced about and not to be feared, because we get to see a better understanding of God, and we see him carry us through in a very beautiful way. The last reason why I think it's important for us to rejoice in that fear is because persecution calibrates our perspective. You see, God is much more concerned about the eternal than the temporal. You might still be in Matthew 10, verse 26, or actually verse 23 says this, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Basically, Jesus is saying, if they're persecuting me, they'll persecute you. So, verse 26, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whisper, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So what he's saying there is he's saying, I'm much more concerned about the eternal than the temporal. This is the reason why in Mark chapter 9, you read this story where Jesus is saying, hey, if your hand's offending you, cut it off. It's better for you to enter heaven with one hand than to go to hell with two hands. He says, if your eye's offending you, pull it out. We just read this in family worship. You can imagine me trying to explain this to a five-year-old, okay? And so he says, pull out your eye if it offends you, because it's much better to go to heaven having only one eye than to go to hell and have two eyes. He says, if your feet. And he goes through this whole thing because what is he saying there? He's saying it's more important to be worried about the eternal state of your soul than the temporal position or pain of your body because this is all temporary. And this is the reason why we can rejoice because in that moment we're seeing what is important. Our safety and security and health and happiness and comfort is not what's most important here. Our eternal state with the Father. So in face of persecution, we can rejoice because it puts all those things in perspective. See, we fixate on the immediate, but God has secured the future, as we saw in First Peter chapter 5. It's really the point of the book of Revelation. 
Let me just say a word about this. I don't want to get on a rabbit trail here too much, but, you know, sometimes people, they, they want to study Revelation, and, and that's awesome. And I, I get people on a somewhat regular basis say, hey, are we ever going to do a study in eschatology or a study of Revelation? And my typical answer is, when I figure it out, I'll teach it. Um, but the point is this. And if you want to say, and here, here's what I think. Most times people, when they want to study Revelation, they're really interested in trying to find out who the Antichrist is. Okay, and they want to know if, like, you know, you know, computer chips are going to be injected into our skin and things like that. That's really what they want to know about, and I don't know. But here's if you're if you're studying Revelation, you're fixated on that. Great, you want to figure out if the rapture, if there's a rapture, when it happens, a tribulation, all that stuff. You know, is there a millennium? Is there not a millennium? All those type. Of, you want to wrestle with those? Fine, do it. Great. Don't miss the big picture here because here's the big picture of Revelation. The big picture is this, and this is the picture of 1 Thessalonians, and anytime eschatology or study of last things is mentioned, here it is, is that it's an assurance that Jesus wins. Because look at Revelation. John was just under persecution. John wrote Revelation. He was just literally, he was boiled in oil. Okay, and he was pulled out. He wasn't killed by it. He was boiled in oil, and then the emperor exiles him to Patmos, this island. And so now he's on this island, and he gets this vision, which is the book of Revelation. So he's just experienced all this trial and persecution. And what's the point of Revelation? We can argue about all the different things, like who the person that coming out of the woods is, and the dragon, and all those type of things. But here's the important point: the big picture. Jesus wins. Okay, that's what's most important. And that's why I believe that God was giving it to Jesus, the vision, or to John, is so that he would say, don't worry about the persecution. Yes, I know you were just boiled in oil. I know that you are scarred. You, he must have been terrible to look at. I know that you have this, 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 this physical infirmity now because of this, but it's worth it. John the Baptist in, in the prison, he says, is, are you the one? And Jesus says, look what's happening. I'm winning. I'm doing my plan here. This is the reason why in 1 Thessalonians, when we're talking about the last things, what is it said? Comfort one another with these words. The point is this. Jesus comes back and wins. So if you're studying Revelation, never miss that big point. It's about Jesus. And that helps us in trials. That helps us in persecution. Knowing that Jesus wins. You can kill the body. You can take my health. You can silence me by cutting my tongue out. But I've got eternal life in Christ. And this is the reason why I can rejoice. We're so fixated on the immediate. And Jesus says, what about the eternal? Seven weeks ago, I think it was, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the importance of that. Jesus is still risen. He didn't just rise for one day and then go back into the grave. And because of that, he conquered death, he conquered everything Satan can throw at us so we can rejoice. Now I want to share one point in closing. How do we prepare for persecution? Many people approach this topic like a doomsday prepper. I don't think that's the answer because preppers are motivated by fear. So if that's not the answer, then what is the answer? My answer would probably surprise you a little bit. Here's how I think you and I should prepare for persecution. Let's be thankful. Let's be thankful. 
First Thessalonians 5.18 says, be thankful in every circumstance. An interesting study for you to do sometime is to see how many times God condemns complaining and grumbling and he tells us to be thankful. You see, the reason why I think that being thankful is so important, this is what I want us to take home today. I want us to take home this, this, this nugget here of that we need to work on being thankful, grateful Christians because that will prepare us for persecution. We need to stop complaining about life and be grateful for what God has done because thankful people are grateful for what God has given to us and grateful people use what God has given to us. Thankfulness drives us to prayer. Have you ever been so overwhelmed with the spirit of thankfulness of what God has done for you in your life that what is your natural response is to say thank you? It drives us to prayer. Thankfulness moves us to open the scriptures. Thankfulness directs us to be in fellowship with one another. Thankfulness compels us to be more like Christ. So if we want to be ready for persecution, we need to cultivate a thankful heart. A heart that is thankful to God will be ready to confess the name of the one from whom all blessings flow. See, when we're so moved by what God has done for us, and there's a spirit of gratefulness and thankfulness in our soul, how then can we deny the name of the one who gave us everything? If if we're so amazed that if we literally believe that the the breath that I'm breathing right now is a gift from God and I'm thankful to him for it, can I really withhold giving my last breaths for him? See, thankfulness drives us to worship and to stand. And so if you want to take away today, if you want to know one way that you can work on this week of working on being ready for persecution or, or, or when persecution comes and faces you at work, how to be ready for it, I would suggest be thankful. Thankfulness comes from a settled peace that Jesus has won and is in control of this world. So take time to meditate on Jesus and thank him for his power, for his grace, and for his mercy. And once you see Jesus and his glory in a fresh way, you will marvel at the subtle peace that God brings to your soul when persecution comes. If you're thankful that God has saved you, you're overwhelmed and amazed that God has saved you. When people mock you, it won't seem like a big deal. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that we would respond in a way that is glorifying to you, that we would cultivate a thankful heart. We take so much for granted. I believe this is the reason why we have a, disp- a predisposition to fear is because we forget that you are providing all things. But when we're thankful, we're conscious that you are providing all things and you will give us the words to say in the moment when we need it. So Lord, I do pray that we would express our thankfulness and that we would love you even more. In Christ's name we do pray, amen.